أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والعقبة للمتقين ولا عدوان إلا على الظالمين وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده ولا شريك له إله الأولين والآخرين وأشهد أن نبينا محمد عبده ورسوله المصطفى الأمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على عبدك ورسولك محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد Welcome to another episode of our tafsir page by page and inshallah ta'ala today we are on page 35 of the Quran and that is in the second juz surah al-Baqarah so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the um, in the previous episode we said that the ending of the previous or the last verse that we covered in the previous episode is connected to the first verse on this page. And that is why we took the first portion of uh, of this verse, verse 220 in the previous episode. So we're going to continue inshallah ta'ala from where we left off which is uh, towards the very beginning of this verse but not exactly at the beginning. And that is the statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, أَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ وَيَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنِ الْيَتَامَى They ask you concerning the orphans. The uh, One of the things that we've noticed so far in, in Surah Al-Baqarah, and one of the things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Qur'an, are the questions that were posed to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And then how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala responds to those questions that were posed to our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Sometimes those questions are posed by Muslims, by the companions, radiyallahu anhum ajma'een, and other times they were questions that were posed by the non-Muslims, maybe by the Jews or the Christians or the Quraysh of Mecca or some of the other non-Muslims. And in each case, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answers the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam with the revelation of the Qur'an. So from amongst those instances is this instance here where a number of the Muslims asked concerning the orphans and their property. Now the orphans, as we know, they have a, a position or a, a special position and place in our religion because an orphan is someone who has lost one or both parents. And so therefore they are naturally at a disadvantage in terms of their upbringing, in terms of their custodianship, in terms of people looking out for their welfare and their well-being. And so Islam has given a great reward and has afforded a great status to those people who can take uh, orphans under their care and look after them and the general way that that is done is not just to simply give money or to provide for them because that is only one aspect but rather what it means is to actually look after the orphan meaning that you bring them in into your household so you look after them not only their financial needs but their physical needs their emotional needs all of the things that you would do for your own child you give towards this orphan boy or girl as well and that is why the Prophet ﷺ told us that about the reward of the orphan or the one who looks after the orphan. The Prophet ﷺ said that me and him will be, or me and her will be like this in Jannah. And he raised his two fingers, ﷺ, meaning that they will be close in station and position to the Prophet ﷺ in paradise. And that's because these people, usually an orphan, is a child. Because once they've reached adulthood, they're no longer considered to be an orphan. And so that child, especially if they don't have anyone to look after their needs, look after their interests, sometimes the orphan has inherited money from their deceased parent or parents. And so therefore, there are so many different issues that are required in terms of the upbringing and the well-being and care of the orphan. One of the uh, verses that Allah Azza wa revealed in the Qur'an 
spoke about how you should be careful when he came to the wealth of the orphan. So sometimes the orphan, not every orphan has to be poor. Sometimes the orphan can have money. Their parents were wealthy or they were relatively comfortable and so that orphan child inherits from them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said elsewhere in the Quran, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يَأْكُلُونَ أَمْوَالَ الْيَتَامَى ظُلْمًا إِنَّمَا يَأْكُلُونَ فِي بُطُونِهِمْ نَارًا وَسَيَصْلَوْنَ سَعِيرًا Indeed those who devour the wealth of the orphans unjustly, indeed they only devour into their bellies a portion of the fire and they will be given the punishment of the hellfire in the next life. In that verse, Allah warns against taking the wealth of the orphan uh, unjustly. The orphan's a child, doesn't really know about money issues, doesn't really know about finances. And so it's very easy for the one who is the custodian because they control the wealth. It is under their care and their custodianship that they could divert some of those funds towards themselves, use some of that money, take some of that money for their own interest and benefit and so on. And so Allah warned in that verse with the severe punishment for those people who do so. That led then to Muslims at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, the companions who were in that situation of looking after orphans, of being extremely careful because they didn't want to have even the slightest amount of doubt when it came to the issue of the wealth of the orphans. But that made it very difficult for them on a daily basis. So when it came to the food, they would separate their food from the food of the orphan. I buy this with my money and I buy that with their money. Clothing, drink, every aspect of their life, they would try to uh, divorce or separate financially. And as we know, when you're living in one household and you're, you have children and you have orphans and everyone's together, it is extremely difficult to keep that. So you can't eat from there because that's his wealth. And I can only eat from this because that's what I bought for my money. And you only eat from that because that's from... And so it becomes very difficult to do. And so some of those companions, they came to the Prophet ﷺ and they asked him concerning this. And that is why Allah Azza wa responds and he says, قُلْ إِصْلَاحٌ لَهُمْ خَيْرٌ Allah Azza wa says it is good to set things right for them. And if you combine their affairs with yours, then they are your siblings, they are your brothers and sisters. Meaning that it's okay, you don't have to go to that extent. What Allah is warning against are those people who intentionally try to take the money of others and devour it unjustly. That's the people that Allah is warning against. But the fact that you're living together and you share things, you know, I live in a household, so what I do in terms of paying for my food and my drink and for the other things, the other issues of the household, everyone benefits from it. And so sometimes I may, there may be a certain, uh, a certain, as Allah says, a certain combination of affairs, a certain mixing between finances, but it is done for the good of all of those people in the household. That is something which Allah uh, says that therefore it is okay. And Allah then goes on to say, Wallahu ya'lamul mufsida min al-muslih. Indeed, Allah knows those who wish to corrupt from those who wish to improve. Those who wish to do good and rectify, Allah knows their intention. And those who in their hearts there is corruption and evil, they want to steal, they want to take the wealth unjustly and so on, Allah also knows them and their intentions as well. And so as long as you have that piety of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as long as you're looking after the affairs of those orphans in a just and balanced way, then Allah Azza wa Jal knows the intentions of people. وَلَوْ شَاءَ اللَّهُ لَعَنَتَكُمْ Allah says, and had He so willed, He could have made you vulnerable too. He could have made things difficult for you if He had wished, subhanahu wa ta'ala, إِنَّ اللَّهَ عَزِيزٌ حَكِيمٌ He could have made you vulnerable too. Indeed, Allah Azza wa Jal is almighty and all-wise. In the next verse, verse 221, and these uh, next few pages, these passages of Surah Al-Baqarah are now going to speak about a number of rulings. 
So we've already had a number of rulings that we've discussed so far in this uh, juz of Surah Al-Baqarah. We've had rulings with regards to fasting and with regards to hajj and certain other issues and affairs that Allah Azza wa has mentioned. And these are also a number of pages now that will speak about rulings. The next two or three episodes, much of it will be to do with different rulings. And Allah Azza wa doesn't give us a, a comprehensive set of rules for each and every single issue, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala highlights certain issues and points towards them. And often it is these issues issues that are extremely important because in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, the Quraysh, the Arabs generally in pre-Islam, these were issues that they would greatly fall foul of. They would have a great deal of oppression and transgression with regards to them. So for example, the orphans were often oppressed in that culture. The women were often oppressed in that culture. Divorce was used as a way of oppressing people in that culture and so on and so forth. So Allah Azza mentions a number of rulings. In verse 221, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the ruling of marriage and the marriage of a Muslim to a non-Muslim, and in particular someone who is not from the people of the scripture, from the Jews and the Christians, they have their separate ruling that Allah Azza will mention in a verse uh, that comes in a different surah in the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But here Allah Azza wa says, وَلَا تَنْكِحُوا الْمُشْرِكَاتِ حَتَّى يُؤْمِنْ وَلَا أَمَةٌ مُؤْمِنَةٌ خَيْرٌ مِّنْ مُشْرِكَةٍ وَلَوْ أَعْجَبَتْكُمْ Do not marry adulteresses until they believe. Do not marry the women who are idolaters, who are polytheists, who worship other than Allah Azza wa Jal, until they believe. A believing slave woman is better than the one who is an idolatrous, even though she may please you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and this is a general principle in our religion, as the Prophet sallallahu told us in the hadith that many of us are familiar with, that when a person looks for marriage, they look towards a woman's beauty, a woman's wealth, a woman's lineage, a woman's religion. Choose the one with religion, the Prophet said, and you will be successful. Here Allah is saying that that is a general rule that we have in our religion. And so the woman who may be a slave, but she is a mu'mina, she's a believer, is greater and better in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala than the one who is a disbeliever, she's a polytheist, even though she may be more pleasing to you in terms of her beauty, in terms of her lineage, in terms of her wealth, and so on and so forth. Because... Ultimately, as we know in our religion, the most important thing for us is Islam. It is to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the same goes the other way as well. It's not just the men towards the women, but likewise for the women and the men as well. Allah says, وَلَا تُنْكِحُ الْمُشْرِكِينَ حَتَّى يُؤْمِنُوا وَلَا عَبَدٌ مُؤْمِنٌ خَيْرٌ مِّن مُشْرِكٍ وَلَوْ أَعْجَبَكُمْ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and do not give your women in marriage to idolaters until they believe. A believing slave is certainly better than idolater, an, an, an idolater, even though he may please you. And so likewise, the ruling is the same. Whether it is the woman that wants to marry the man or the man who is seeking marriage from the woman. And that is because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that ultimately, when it comes to marriage, if it is the man who marries a woman who is, for example, worshipping idols, worshipping other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, making that type of shirk, the woman will become the mother. The wife becomes the mother. The mother gives a lot of tarbiyah, a lot of time that she spends with her children. And therefore, a lot of those children's and their practice, the, the children's beliefs and their practices and their habits and customs and so on will come from her belief system and from her culture as well. And if it is the woman that is marrying the man and he's the one who's the idolater, then she will have to listen to him because he will have a certain level of authority in the household and a certain level of 
the authority over his children as well when and as they are born. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, stay away from this. Because this is something which Allah Azza wa has forbidden. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, For indeed those are people that call to the fire. Wallahu yad'u jannati wal While Allah calls you to Jannah and forgiveness by His leave. One of the lessons that we take from this, therefore, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us that everything that Allah Azza wa ordains or legislates in the Sharia, even if it is something which our souls find difficult to accept, or our temptations and desires find it difficult to accept, it is better for us in the long run. Because Allah Azza wa ultimately wants us to arrive in Jannah, to attain Jannah and His pleasure, uh, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so therefore, patience, perseverance, the level of determination, it is extremely important when it comes to aspects of worship and aspects of dealings and aspects of relationships. It is extremely important to remember what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants ultimately for the believer. And that is that Allah azza wa wants Jannah. Whereas shaitan and the people who follow his path want for you the fire. And that is the promise that shaitan made, that he would misguide all of mankind except for the sincere chosen slaves of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, those people who accept Iman and those people who worship Allah azza wa in the way that he has ordained and legislated. And so this is something which Allah azza wa is mentioning here. Yes, the dunya prospect, it may seem more appealing to you in some occasions or at some times to marry that woman or that man who's a non-Muslim. May be more appealing to you. May You may think that it's better for you in one way or another. That person may be wealthy. They may have certain privileges or, or their lineage may afford them certain positions and certain favors within society. But Allah Azza wa is saying that a slave, even though a slave is someone who is owned, doesn't have any wealth that they possess, doesn't have anything to their name that they can claim is theirs, that person because of their iman is still better. And so Allah Azza wa Jal puts down this principle for us. And this is not a verse, therefore, that says that you should marry slaves that are believers, that it's encouraging that type of marriage. No. But Allah Azza wa is laying down a principle that Iman is more precious and more valuable in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah Azza wa says, He makes His messages clear to the people so that they may bear them in mind. And to understand these principles, to understand the hakam of Allah Azza wa Jal and the wisdom behind them when and where that is possible, is, it is something which is extremely important. In verse number 222, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, then continues and he speaks about another issue, another question that was posed to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And that is the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal in verse 222, they ask your messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam about menstruation. The, uh, as we know, menstruation is something which Allah Azza wa has ordained upon the female slaves of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the women. Allah Azza wa has ordained this upon them. And that is why the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam in the hadith of the farewell hajj, when he was making hajj with his wife Aisha radiallahu anha, and she entered her monthly cycle whilst she was in the state of ihram, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said to her, don't be upset for this is something which Allah has decreed upon the daughters of Adam. So this is something which Allah has decreed for women. The, some of the cultures in and around Medina were of the position, this was their belief and their custom, that if a woman entered her monthly cycle, you had to completely stay away from her. 
You couldn't really mix with her. You couldn't sit with her and eat with her. You couldn't share the same food or the same vessels and utensils as her. They would be extremely strict. And as we know, a woman enters a monthly cycle every month. For five, six, seven, eight, nine days a month, she's upon that monthly cycle. So every single month, they would go through this. So some of the Muslims, the Ansar, the, the Medinans, some of the Muslims, when they entered into Islam, they didn't know, is this the same ruling for us as well in Islam? What these people do of the scripture and of other religions? Or do we have something different? So Allah Azza wa replied and he said, قُلْ هُوَ أَذَنْ فَاعْتَزِلُ النِّسَاءَ فِي الْمَحِيضِ Say menstruation is a painful condition, so keep away from women during it. Meaning keep away from having marital relations with them. And so what we know then from the Qur'an and from the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ from his own practice and life, because as we know the Prophet ﷺ had a number of wives, he had daughters and so on and so forth, is that the only thing that Islam forbade in terms of the union between man and woman between marriage is that they don't have marital relations during that period of time. As for sitting with them, traveling with them, eating with them, sharing utensils with them, everything else, it is something which is permissible. And the Prophet ﷺ would spend time and, and be intimate with his wives, but he wouldn't go to the uh, end of that, which is to have full-on marital relations. And so that is the only thing that Allah has forbidden. And obviously for the one that's menstruating, the woman that's menstruating, there are certain rules that she has to abide by as well in terms of her not being able to pray and fast and touch the Qur'an and so on and so forth, make tawaf. Those things are known. But here Allah Azza wa is speaking in a specific context and that is marital relations. Don't have marital relations. Everything below that and everything else is something which Allah Azza wa has allowed. وَلَا تَقْرَبُوهُنَّ حَتَّى يَطْهُرُنَ And do not approach them until they have become cleansed. فَإِذَا تَطَهَّرْنَ فَأْتُوهُنَّ مِنْ حَيْثُ أَمَرَكُمُ اللَّهِ And once they are cleansed, you may approach them as Allah Azza wa Jal has legislated. And what he means by cleansing is the ghusl, the bath, the ritual bath that the woman takes after her monthly cycle has finished. And when we say menstruation monthly cycle, also included in that is the postpartum bleeding that takes place after childbirth. These times Allah Azza wa Jal has told us to stay away from women in terms of marital relations until that woman takes her ritual bath of purification, of cleansing, then Allah Azza wa says it is not permissible for you to continue to have those relations with them as Allah Azza wa has ordained. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says at the end of this verse, إِنَّ اللَّهَ يُحِبُّ التَّوَّابِينَ وَيُحِبُّ الْمُتَطَهِّرِينَ For indeed Allah loves those who frequently repent to Him. And Allah Azza wa loves those who frequently keep clean and purify themselves. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves these two things. Allah azza wa loves those who continuously make tawbah. They turn to Allah when they make a mistake, when they commit a sin, when they have a moment of forgetfulness. The people who are constantly making istighfar. As the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is reported that in a single sitting, he would make istighfar and say astaghfirullah 70 times. And it is said in other narrations, as is in the narration of Ibn Umar radiallahu anhumah, that sometimes a hundred times a day, he would make istighfar. And he would say, Allahumma ghfirli wa tub ali, innaka anta tawabur rahim. He would ask Allah to forgive him and to shower his repentance upon him. Even though, as we know, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa was forgiven for all of his sins, past and future. But it is something which he did to continuously seek forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And istighfar and tawbah is amazing. And there will be verses that we will speak about that inshallah ta'ala in more detail. But here Allah azza wa combines that element of 
the internal or the uh, the purity of the heart, the internal cleansing of the heart, which is what tawbah and istighfar is. It is us asking Allah Azza to purify our heart from the sins and the disobedience that we accumulate, that internal purification and cleansing. Allah Azza says, and He loves those who outwardly, externally purify and cleanse themselves as well. And they are the people who make tatahur. They are the people who bathe, who keep themselves clean. And as we know in our religion, there are a number of things that we do in order to maintain that cleanliness. So for example, when we pray, there are certain things that we do beforehand in the way that we go to the bathroom and we leave ourselves in the way that we make wudu or ghusl. All of these things are so that we purify ourselves. And the Prophet ﷺ, for example, used to use the miswak, the tooth stick, that he would use and cleanse himself, his mouth with frequently. And the Prophet ﷺ said, were it not that it would be difficult, too difficult for my ummah to do, I would have commanded that they use the miswak with every wudu, or at the beginning of every wudu, or in the, the hadith at the beginning of every salah. And so to be in a state of purification, the Prophet ﷺ used to love perfume, he used to love smelling good, looking good and clean, and, and, and having purification within himself wasallam. And this is therefore from our religion. And so to have internal purity and cleanliness with external purity and cleanliness, both of those things are beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because some people focus on their internal and they forget their external. They don't dress very cleanly, they don't smell very good, and they're people who are people of ibadah and people of worship and so on. That's something which isn't a good state to be in. And the more likely case is that people focus on their outward appearance, but in terms of their inner state, the state of their heart, they are neglectful and heedless when it comes to issues of the heart and issues of of repentance and seeking forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah Azza wa in verse 23, he then says, and this is an extension of the previous verse, نِسَاءُكُمْ حَرْثٌ لَكُمْ فَأْتُوا حَرْثَكُمْ أَنَّا شِئْتُمْ وَقَدِّمُوا لِأَنفُسِكُمْ Your wives are your fields, so go into your fields, whichever way you like, and send something good ahead for yourselves. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that it is permissible for the wife and the husband to have intimate relations as they choose and please with the two or three exceptions that are mentioned within the sharia. For example, as we just mentioned in the previous verse, that they avoid the times of menstruation. Those certain things that are mentioned in the books of fiqh, two or three, four or five exceptions that are mentioned in those books, that is what you have to stay away from. Everything else is permissible. And it is said that again, some of the companions of Medina would look at the people of other cultures and they would say that they say, if you do this, for example, or if you approach your wife in this way, or you have these types of intimate relations with your spouse, then this is what will happen. And if you have a child, all of these superstitions that people have in terms of these things. And Allah said, no, it is all permissible. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made it all halal with the exception of those two or three things as we mentioned and the details of them because I know that this is a program that we may have young children and other members of the family watching. So I don't want to be too explicit, but they are found within the books of fiqh. And so the onus is upon you and me, us, to at, when we come to that stage in our life, when we're going to marriage, to learn those rulings as a person should before they embark upon anything with, with regards to uh, something which Allah Azza wa has legislated concerning. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then in verse 224, Allah Azza wa speaks about another issue, another ruling. And that is this time the ruling of taking an oath in the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah Azza wa says in verse 224, 
ولا تجعلوا الله عرضة لأيمانكم أن تبروا وتتقوا وتصلحوا بين الناس والله سميع عليم And look at all of these issues that Allah Azza wa Jal is mentioning here. Allah says, subhanahu wa ta'ala, do not allow your oaths in God's name to hinder you from doing good. Being mindful of Allah and making peace between people, for indeed Allah hears and knows everything. The, um, the verse here speaks about taking an oath. An oath is when you invoke the name of Allah Azza wa Jal upon something. So you say, for example, by Allah, I will go and do such and such a thing. Or by Allah, I will not do such and such a thing. The invoking of the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for a command or for an action that you're going to do or for some statement that you're going to make, that is considered to be an oath. That is considered to be an oath. And in Arabic, the word for an oath is yameen or ayman, which is the plural. And so Allah Azza wa calls it here, aymanikum. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, do not allow your oaths to be a reason to hinder you from doing good. All of these issues that Allah Azza is mentioning, whether it's to do with divorce, whether it's to do with looking after the uh, the orphans, whether it's to do, for example, uh, women's, women and their rights and their, their place and so on, or when it comes to doing with oaths, all of these issues the Quraysh and the Arabs generally had issues with. Each one of them for the believer, he understands or she understands that these are things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala legislated. And Allah azza wa knows best because he has infinite knowledge and wisdom wherein my salvation and my betterment lies. And so therefore, I will follow the commands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So here Allah azza wa in verse 224 is saying that sometimes people take an oath even though what they took an oath for is not the best thing to do. Or they make an oath and there is something better that they can do in the place of the oath that they made. So therefore, your oath should not be a reason for you to stay away from doing what is better and more pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or what is better in terms of your relationships with others. So for example, someone comes and says that I want you to reconcile between me and my wife, me and my friend, me and a family member. And you say, by Allah, I will never get involved. You make an oath, by Allah, I will never get involved. And then you realize that actually it would be better for the family, for the community, for that friendship, for the brotherhood of of that community amongst the Muslims and so on. It would be better and you're one of the few people that has the ability to go and deal with that issue. You're taking an oath by Allah Azza wa Jal that you wouldn't do so. Maybe you were upset, maybe you were busy, maybe whatever the issue is. But you know now that it is better. Allah Azza wa Jal says, don't let the oath stop you from doing what, and that is from the beauty of the Sharia. Rather, what you do is you expiate for the oath, give the expiation, and then go and do as uh, as you should and help those people or do that act of worship that is closer and more beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is exactly what the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam did himself subhanahu wa ta'ala. In the hadith of Abu Musa al-Ash'ari radiallahu anhu in Sahih al-Bukhari, a group of the Ash'ariyeen, which is the tribe of Abu Musa radiallahu anhu, they came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and they are originally from Yemen. They came to the Prophet and they wanted to go on an expedition, but they were poor. They didn't have animals, horses, camels, animals that they could ride upon and go in forth into this battle. When they came, the Prophet said to them, By Allah, I don't have anything for you and I won't give you anything. I don't have anything. The Prophet didn't have any extra animals that were spared to him. So he says, I don't have anything and I won't give you anything. So they went away. After a while, the Prophet ﷺ, someone came and he gave him a flock of camels or a herd of camels or a flock of, or some type of group of animals. And so the Prophet ﷺ called back 
the Ash'ariyeen, that tribe, and he said, look, I found some animals for you, take them. They took them and then they said, how can we take this now after the oath that the Prophet ﷺ just made? So they went back and they said, oh Messenger of Allah, you made an oath and now you've given us these animals. The Prophet ﷺ said, by Allah, I don't make an oath and then I find that something is better than the oath that I made, except that I will expiate from my oath and do what is better. And that is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying here. We will take the final uh, or the next verse, even though it is the first verse on the next page, because it is also to do with the issue of oaths. And that is verse 225 in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَا يُؤَاخِذُكُمُ اللَّهُ بِاللَّغْوِ فِي أَيْمَانِكُمْ وَلَكِنْ يُؤَاخِذُكُمْ بِمَا كَسَبَتْ قُلُوبُكُمْ وَاللَّهُ غَفُورٌ حَلِيمٌ He will not call you to account for oaths that you have uttered unintentionally, but rather he will call you to account for what you mean in your heart. For indeed Allah Azza wa Jal is most forgiving and forbearing. It is common practice in some cultures that people take oaths as part of their normal speech. People are always saying, Wallahi, by Allah, Tallahi. Some people in their normal everyday speech, they're always invoking the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as an oath. And they don't mean by it an oath, but it's just something which they do in their speech. Allah Azza wa says that those types of oaths are not the oaths that Allah Azza wa is referring to. Because that person in their heart didn't intend to take an oath. So someone says, yeah, you know, by Allah I went and did this, and by Allah I'm going to do that, and by Allah. And they don't actually mean an oath that I will definitely do this. It's just part of the way that they speak. Some people in their cultures, this is just the way that they converse and the way that they speak. Allah Azza wa says those types of oaths, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not hold you to account for. The oath that you will be held to account for is the oath that your heart has made a true and firm conviction upon, a true intention that you truly made an oath in the name of Allah Azza wa for that purpose. And that is, this is from the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon his creation. That Allah Azza wa knows that certain people, their nuances of language, the way that they speak and converse, makes them speak and say certain things in this way. Those things are not intentional. They're not meant to be literally taken. They are just simply expressions that people have as part and course of their speech. And so Allah Azza wa Jalla says that is not the oath that Allah is referring to when we speak about the rulings of taking an oath and what it refers to and expiations and so on. It's not that type of oath. It's the oath that you had the intention in your heart that I'm taking this oath in the name of Allah Azza wa By Allah, I will fast on this day. By Allah, I will make i'tikaf this year. By Allah, next year I will go for hajj. These are firm oaths that you take in your heart because you truly intend to do those actions. Those are the ones that Allah Azza wa says that we have the rulings for in our sharia in terms of expiations and other things as well. And with that, inshallah ta'ala, we come to the end of today's uh, tafsir class. And inshallah ta'ala, in our next lesson, we will continue with the next page. بإذن الله تعالى بارك الله فيكم وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم.